You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. The following is a recording of the Ayn Rand Institute's Philosophy for Living on Earth webinar series. Sign up to attend the next webinar live at courses.aynrand.org forward slash webinars forward slash register. Can There Be Good Without God? by Ankar Gatte. Thanks for joining us today. My name's Ankar Gatte, and this is a, a weekly webinar series that the Ayn Rand Institute is putting on called Philosophy for Living on Earth. Um, and the series, we're exploring life's big questions and answers to those questions that come from Ayn Rand's ideas. My name's Ankar Gatte. I'm the host this week. And as you can see, I hope on this title slide, the big question for today is, can there be good without God? I'll be talking for about 20 minutes on this idea, and then we'll open it up uh, to some questions and discussion. And during that time, I'll be joined by my colleague, uh, Aaron Smith. And to ask questions, there's, if you're joining us through Zoom, um, and, and to register for this weekly uh, series, you can see this, the link here on the title card of where to register, you'll be able to post questions uh, in the Q&A module on Zoom. We'll talk a little bit about that when we get to uh, the question period, but let me first uh, just dive into the actual content and dealing with this question. Can there be good without God? Um, to start off, I want to start with, I think, what is a familiar fact that a lot of people are talking about today, and that is that there's a lot of conflicts about values, about what people think is right and wrong, that we live in an a increasingly divided world. And to take just a few of these, on one side, people say abortion is evil. There's a whole other side that says, no, it's wrong to prohibit a woman from having abortion. There's people who say that free speech is good. And the fact that it's enshrined in our constitution in the First Amendment is a great achievement. Other people say free speech absolutist, as people who really take the First Amendment seriously are often called today, free speech absolutists are evil. Um, Trump is right, AOC is wrong, or vice versa. AOC is right, Trump is wrong. Socialism is good, capitalism is evil. Or there's another side saying, no, capitalism is good, socialism is the evil. So there's all kinds of debates in our uh, today among people politically, but way, much wider than just politics in terms of the culture uh, and what we should be doing, what direction as a society and as a nation we should be headed. There's debate about this. But if you zoom out and ask people a more general and abstract question, so the question of where do these ideas and terms, where is good and evil, right and wrong that people are using um, and, and arguing about, what do these ideas mean? Where do they come from? If you ask people that, um, they're often, they, they pause, you're at a loss. What do these ideas actually mean? And one, when people sort of get after off, I mean, so they're, well, 
okay, maybe the way to approach this and what to say about this, a common and perhaps the most common answer is, well, good and evil, right and wrong, morality, it comes from God, and particularly it comes from a God's command. And this, I live in, a, in, in the U.S., this is all over the place in the U.S., that this is when people ask, like, what do good and evil, right and wrong, what do they mean, where do they come from? They come from God. And this is whether, I, to, to take just the, the uh, in the political realm, it doesn't matter if you're dealing with a Democrat or a Republican. When you push them on this is issue, they will both say the same thing. So to President Obama, when he was asked, what, what is the real source of his domestic policies? One of the things he said is, and I'm quoting, I do what I do, quote, because I believe in God's command to love thy neighbor as thyself. Or if you take uh, the, the former Congressman Paul Ryan, who was taken as like, this is pretty different and op even opposite of Obama. When he was asked about his domestic policies and the real source for them, it's he said, and again, quote, the work I do as a Catholic holding office conforms to the social doctrine of the church as best I can make of it. So the, I think the most common answer, particularly in the US, when people are asked this question is, it comes from God. Good and evil, right and wrong, is based on a God commanding certain things, declaring certain things, right or good, and other things wrong or evil. And this idea is often put in the negative, that uh, if God is dead, then everything is permitted. So if there is no God saying, this is right, and that is wrong, this is good, and that is evil, then anything and everything is permitted. And a common example to sort of drive this negative point home is to point to the Nazis and the communists and say, and they'll say this particularly about the communists, but they'll say it about both, that these were godless approaches and look at the destruction and death they led to because everything was permitted. <clears throat> so this is, I wanna talk now a little bit about this whole approach. And I wanna ask a first question is why is this so um, plausible to people? Why does this answer that good and evil, right and wrong, comes from a God's commands and, and, and has to come in the end from a God's commands. If you're going to base it in something, that's where they come from. That's where they're derived. Why does this seem so plausible an answer to many, uh, to many of us? And I think the, one of the answers, and it, this, is, it's, it, this is an important issue to reflect upon, is it comes from our upbringing. It comes partly from many of us have been raised in a religious household. So we've got this sort of pretty explicitly. Um, but even wider than that, when people are taught about right and wrong, good and evil, what they often get is commands. And it doesn't have to be explicitly religious, but wash your hands, share your toys, don't ask so many questions. Children should be seen, not heard. Don't think so much about yourself. That's selfish and wrong. Pride is the worst sin. And if you ask the question, like, why? Why is this so? 
you might get a little bit of argument, but it quickly becomes because I said so. Do it because I said so. This is right because I said so. So we're taught from a very young age to think of good and evil, right and wrong, in terms of someone telling you what to do and what you're supposed to do is just obediently and sort of blindly obey. You're supposed to follow what is said and you're not supposed to ask questions about like, why is this right? Why is this the right thing to do? Why is this good and the other thing evil? Why is pride a sin? Why do I have to share my toys? You're not supposed to ask these questions. You're supposed to just follow along and, and fall into line. And I think the religious approach to uh, morality, to right and wrong, to good and evil, is this approach sort of in spades or writ large. So one of the ways that you can think about what the different religions teach is that you have a holy father. So it's like your mother or father, your parents on stilts, and you have a heavenly father, a holy father, or a holy mother up uh, sort of looming over you, who's issuing commandments, who's giving you orders, who's telling you what to do in the way that your mother or father may have done. And what you're supposed to do is follow along. You're supposed to obey. So it's the if you get from the, the adults in your world, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. And if you ask questions about it, it's because I said so. The religious approach is this same approach, but cemented as there's a, a, a figure lurking over us. We all have one father or one mother, depending on what uh, version of religion you're looking at, who is telling us what to do, who's commanding us, and who's determining what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. And the, the um, story that uh, the, mono, the major monotheistic religions in the West, the story that they tell to drive this idea home that it, when you're thinking about where good and evil, right and wrong come from, you have to think of it in terms of commands that you obey, that the, the final argument is basically because I said so, because I said this is wrong or this is right, that's why you have to do it. The figure to think about here, if you're trying to really get what is the essence and what is fundamental about the, this idea that good requires God is the story of um, Abraham and the story of Abraham and Isaac. And it's important to get that Abraham is a revered figure in Judaism, in Christianity, in Islam. And he's revered precisely for this story. That the, so the, the story in the Old Testament is that uh, Abraham is commanded by God to take a son that he loves, Isaac, go up on the mountaintop and sacrifice him. So that is literally kill him, murder him, because God's commanding him to do this. And the idea is, and the story is, he goes up, and as you can see from this uh, painting, but there's many, many depictions of this story when you look at the history 
of art in the West and of holding, upholding Abraham as an exemplar and as a moral exemplar. He's ready to kill his own son whom he loves because he's been ordered to do it. And this reveals that he is faithful, that he is moral. He's doing what's good. He understands that good comes from God and he's willing to follow no questions asked. He doesn't debate with God. He doesn't ask God for reasons. It's he's ordered and that's what he's going to do. <clears throat> and then the story is an angel intervenes and he doesn't have to go through with it, but that's just means that God has changed his command. And so now what was the right thing or what was good to do changes into no, now that's the wrong thing to do. It would be evil to do it. But the essence of the approach is <clears throat> to say I was only following orders, that someone else or some other being who stands above me commands me and what morality is about is about obedience. And if you think of the religious approach like this, and this, as I'm saying, I think religious thinkers encourage you that this is how you should think about um, the religious morality and the idea of good and right and wrong coming from God. It's about following orders. If you, and they uphold Abraham as this is the great moral figure precisely because he's willing to do this. If you think of it in these terms, then it's wrong, the, the kind of view that I touched on earlier, to think that this is the, a, 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 the opposite approach to the Nazis or to the communists. That, I think, is the wrong way to look at it. It's the same approach. <clears throat> it, and famously, in the case of the Nazi, one of the Nazi war criminals, Eichmann, who was put on trial in Israel after he was captured in South America. His whole approach and his excuse in effect was, I was following orders, the orders of the Fuhrer. But it's the same, and the, his structure of how he looked at what is good and evil is the same. Someone commands it, and I'm to obey blindly and obediently. And this kind of approach has been um, sort of, this is what we're all brought up with. It might not be a version of religion, and certainly won't be for most of us, a version of Nazism. But if you take other moral slogans, it's again, they're approached as these are commandments. <clears throat> so to take now, not from the Nazis, but from the, the communists, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, from Marx. <clears throat> are taken in American context from JFK, another revered figure. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And if you ask questions about this, if you ask why is this moral to do? <clears throat> why is it that if I have ability, it doesn't count, I shouldn't benefit from it, all that counts is that people are in need, they're without things, they're poor, or they're uneducated, and then my whole life is to be to serve them, to give up everything that I'm able to create, to produce, to give up from my ability to their need. Why is that what is good? Why is that moral? Or that you're not supposed to live for the, your own pursuit of happiness, as the Declaration said, 
But as Kennedy's telling you, you should live for your country and you should subordinate yourself to your country. Why is that the right thing to do? You really get no argument or no answer. It's, it's right because it's the right thing to do. This is the commandment you're supposed to obey. It's in the end, the, what backs this up is because we said so, because we the authorities, whether it's Marx or it's your president, this is what we said, so this is what you're supposed to do. That's the idea that if good came from an authority, this is what it looks like. It's they command, you obey. And I think that approach to morality is completely wrong. And it's one of the approaches that Ayn Rand in her uh, work is challenging and, and saying, we, you need to question and reject this and replace it with a far better alternative and a far better approach. So let me just in, in uh, a little brief space, explain a little bit of her approach. The first two quotes where she's really challenging this uh, religious commandment-based approach. That you need a new approach to morality. You have to reject completely that it's about commandments. And this is these are two quotes, both from her uh, last novel, Atlas Shrugged. If I were to speak your kind of language, I would say that man's only moral commandment is thou shalt think. But a moral commandment is a contradiction in terms. The moral is the chosen, not the force. The understood, not the obeyed. The moral is the rational and reason accepts no commandments. And that the goal of morality, she puts it, is the purpose of morality is to teach you not to suffer and die. And there you can think of Abraham, who's, I mean, he's going to kill his own son whom he loves. He's going to suffer tremendously. The purpose of morality is not to teach you to suffer and die, but to enjoy yourself and live. It's about thinking of a life that you want to live and that you think of as worth living. So far from thinking of morality about commandments, she thinks of morality and what she's trying to convince us of um, is that we should approach morality and right and wrong and good and evil as a science. So, and it's, it's useful to, to compare this approach to the science of medicine. In medicine, you have a goal. You're trying to achieve physical health. And then you do a tremendous amount of studying of what will actually lead, what is physical health, what produces it, what hinders it, how do I achieve it? And you develop medical principles, scientific principles that you form by investigation and reasoning, by observation and logical reasoning. This is what I need to do. These are principles that I'm going to use to guide me to achieve physical health. And then you have to implement those principles and you can call it the art of healing or the art of medicine, where you take these scientific medical principles and you apply them or with your doctor, you apply them to your own life and own specific circumstances, including the, your own specific uh, <clears throat> physical endowments and so on. And her view is that morality, you should think of it in the same kind of way. You have a goal to achieve happiness through the days of your life, that you can look back on your life and say, that was a life worth living. I'm glad to have lived through that. 
And to, in order to achieve that, you have to think carefully about what is such a life? What does it consist of? What kinds of actions and activities? And how do I achieve it? It takes a lot of observation, a lot of thinking to develop moral principles that are guiding you towards happiness and towards a life worth living. And then you actually have to live. So in, just as there's an art of healing or an art of medicine, there's an art of living where you apply the principle, the scientific principles of morality, of principles about what right and wrong, good and evil, to your own life and own circumstances. And we each have our own individual life to live. That this is how we should think of it. And just as you don't think of medicine as it's about commandments and obedience, so you should not think about morality or good and evil as it's about commandments and obedience. It's about carefully thinking through all kinds of issues in life. And here I, I've listed, and it's sort of a laundry list, of just some of the things that you have to think about, of what to pursue in life and how to act to reach that if you think of it as it's part of what's involved in reaching a life of happiness. That what ethics or morality studies is what person do I want to become and what life do I want to lead? And there's all kinds of issues you have to think about if you're really going to have a view about this and have knowledge about this. Should I, to take something I talked about a little bit earlier, should I have and strive to have pride in myself and in my life? Or is pride a sin and it, I should be concerned more about being humble and humility? What is the place of money in life? Is money the root of all evil? Or is it properly pursued the root of good. How do I think of justice? Is it important or is mercy higher than justice? What is forgiveness? Should I forgive everybody? Some people? Does forgiveness have to be earned? And you can go on and on. There's all kinds of issues about well, what is it, does it mean to have integrity or courage or is compromise rather than sticking to your own principles? Is compromise the route that you should be taking if you're pursuing a life of happiness. There's, and this is just, as I say, this is in some ways just scratching the surface of the kinds of issues in life that you would have to consider if you're taking seriously the question of what person do I want to become? What life do I want to live? If I, in, in my end of my days, if I look back and think that was a life worth living, what would that be? And that that is what ethics or morality is that's its subject matter. That's what it means to think about this. And if you want to get Rand's take on this, and I highly encourage you, um, if you haven't read Ayn Rand's novels, or We the Living, Anthem, The Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged, she in those novels, in those stories, is grappling with the kinds of issues I put up and many more about should you seek money, power, what kind of power, does power corrupt, She's exploring all kinds of issues in the novels, and she has a very distinctive ideas and perspectives on all these kinds of issues. And if you're taking morality seriously, that's what it means. And it's doing that kind of exploration, that kind of investigation, with the goal of this is a science, that I'm going to reach principles that I view as knowledge, which I'm going to use to guide my actions. 
And so it, to the question, can there be good without God? I think in the end, the answer is there can only be good without God because it's about actual knowledge, not about commandments and blind obedience. So if I, to summarize, and then uh, we'll get to the, the question period. I made three points, you can think of as three takeaways, that we've all, or almost all of us, have been taught and inculcated since childhood with the view that good and evil, right and wrong, what it consists of is a list of commandments or duties that we just have to obey. And why? Because it's right, because I said so. And that the religious approach is just that same approach on a grand scale, but blindly following orders doesn't make sense. And it's not the opposite of Nazism or communism. It's the same kind of approach. And so if you're taking good and evil and morality seriously, what you need to be prepared to do is to rethink morality and approach it as a science like medicine that what you're striving for is rational principles that will guide you towards a goal. And the goal is a life worth living or a life of happiness. Um, So that's, if if you want to to understand Rand's view on this, it's the novels that first and foremost to explore. And then here I've put up uh, some further reading that you can do, one article of mine and three of Ayn Rand's to get more of this uh, approach. And let me, um, I, can, I can paste it in the chat as well, these, so you have the actual links. Um, but it, it, it's a radically different approach. And, I, it, and it's a, even if you don't in the end come to agree with it, it's a very illuminating to treat good and evil and morality as a science and what you're after is knowledge, not commandments. It's, it's, a, it's a radically different approach that is worth investigating. Okay, so that brings me to the end of this presentation. Thanks for listening. Um, so in a moment, I'll be joined, as I said at the outset, by my colleague, Aaron Smith, who's gonna help me moderate the Q&A. Um, and if you're on Zoom, there's a Q&A module. You can post questions there We'll be looking at those uh, and taking these um, uh, as questions we're going to be answering. We, the last I've heard, we have about 500 plus subscribers to the webinar series, so we can't promise we'll get to every question. We'll do what we can. But before turning to the Q&A, let me just remind you uh, that you can, so you can register for this whole series. It is happening weekly. Next week, uh, my colleague here at the Ayn Rand Institute, Elon Journal, will be talking about self-esteem. His title is, What is Self-Esteem? How do I get it? And again, if you register for this series, then you'll get notifications about um, each upcoming uh, uh, webinar. Okay, so, oh, well, one last thing is we're going to try with the Zoom feature. You should get, in a moment, a polling um, module that pops up. And what, so we're, we're designing these webinars for people relatively new to Ayn Rand and to her ideas. And so we're curious who is actually listening and the audience that we're reaching. So the poll is just uh, so about your level, what, how you would describe your own level of familiarity with 
uh, Ayn Rand. So you should get it. I think it has five options about your level of familiarity uh, and you can click on that and we'll get the results. Um, but we'll now turn to the Q and A. Uh, so Aaron, are you there? I think you need to, uh, hi Aaron. Hi, hi everyone. So I'm watching the poll. So do we want to move to questions? Yeah, we might as well move to questions. I think I'll, I'll close the module in a, it's been in, I'll let it run for two minutes and then I'll. Okay, so we've got a mix of questions. Some were sent in early and some were uh, posted live here. So I want to start with one of the ones that came, uh, had, was sent in early. Uh, the question is this, you say that morality need not come from an authority figure, but if there's no outside arbiter, how can a solitary individual claim to be moral, morally right over the opinions of a mob when both sides claim to be right? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. And I think it's a question that reveals how um, entrenched the view is that when you think about right and wrong, good and evil, you think of it in terms, and we all think of it in terms of commandments and obedience, because would you ask the same question if, uh, so I was, part of what I was presenting is that Ayn Rand thinks of morality and ethics as a science. Would you ask the same thing about science? So if um, Galileo's arguing that, no, the, the earth is not at the center of the solar system uh, and the earth is actually moving, it's not stationary, and there's a whole mob of people who say, no, that's crazy. It's obviously at the center and it's obviously not moving. How do you know who's right about this? And isn't it just, well, the majority, they're the ones declaring this, so they've got numbers on their side. But the question isn't who's got more numbers or who more, has more bodies. The question is who can actually prove his case? And Galileo had all kinds of evidence and all kinds of arguments for why we should think, no, it's an error. It's false to think that the earth is at the center. Um, and it's, there were arguments about like, if it's moving, wouldn't we all be flying off the earth? And, and, um, and he had counter arguments, no, that's not the right way to think of it. He had a whole scientific case and scientific principles that this is the right conclusion. And really the, the mob facing him is no, but we've got a book where it's sort of commanded that we're supposed to think that the earth is at the center of the, the solar system, not the sun. And it's irrelevant. That is irrelevant and it's irrelevant how many people think that. The issue is who can actually prove their case. And in regard to uh, ethics or morality, if you take seriously that the goal is an earthly and understandable goal that what you want to do is you want to achieve happiness. You want to achieve um, a life, a life that is complete. One of the ways you can think about it, a life that is completely on the side of life, of doing anything and everything that is actually contributing to your life, to your survival, to your ability to prosper. So, and that's what I think one can think of as fully living or thriving. That's an actual condition, just like physical health is an actual condition. And you can study what produces that 
what achieves that? And so your principles are causal principles about how to achieve that. And this is completely knowable. It's completely provable. So just as in physics or chemistry, the issue is who can prove their conclusions? So I think the proper thinking about morality is who can prove by means of evidence and uh, logical reasoning that this conclusion is right. Um, th this is the proper goal to have, and these are the proper means of reaching that goal. I don't, you, do you want to weigh in, Aaron? Do you want to say anything? No, just to say, just to point uh, people interested in that answers to that question to uh, Rand's essay, Who is the Final Authority in Ethics? It's a, it's a good place to start on that specific question. And that's one of the links that I have. It's, so it's in, that's in the chat, um, and that's up on our website. You can find that essay. Okay, so let me uh, pose a question we got sent in from Jonathan. Uh, what is the historical source of religion's duty approach to morality? i.e. was Christianity the first to articulate obedience as the essence of morality, or did they just give it its fullest, most consistent form? Um, so I don't think it's the first, and you can think of, uh, I mean, the story of Abraham in the Old Testament as Judaism, so you might think of it as the Judeo-Christian, but I don't think of even that as the first. There's many precursors to the Judeo-Christian religious uh, approach. And if you think, say, of uh, ancient Egypt, I think, the, the, but I do think that part of what I sketched in, in the presentation, that there's a way of thinking of what God is and the kind of projections and imaginations of whether it's the Egyptian gods uh, or the God of the Old Testament or the God of the New Testament or the way of Islam thinks of God. <clears throat> that it's a projection and a, uh, I put it, put it on, it's a grand scale projection of a fatherly of or, or a motherly figure who's from early on telling you what to do. And if you take sort of as the standard type of that, they're telling you without giving you reasons. So I, I think one of the things I said was wash your hands. Now you can do that in a way that like, why should I wash my hands? Because I said so. You're not giving any reasons. You could give reasons. There's a reason a person should wash their hands to get germs off them. And so you could explain for some things, but the norm is it's not explained. It's just you're told this. And that, so in, in that sense, that um, this, the kind of idea that, uh, God is a projection of things that we already think. I think that to understand the idea or the notion of God and of religion, that's an important thing to keep in mind. And so it's a way of inventing a heavenly or supernatural mother or father who's giving you the commands in a similar way to your whether it's your mother, father, tribal elders, and so, it, and in that sense, I think that is part of what you have to get. That that's its source, and in that sense, it makes it understandable because this is how I think tribes function. Um, and it was a problem that if early on everyone is at, well, can you give me a reason for this and so on? Because they're not even at the level of really thinking in terms of reasons. And so, but so there, when you look at sort of the history of mankind. I think there's, it's understandable, though I think still an error, 
that you would get this kind of approach. Um, yeah, so that, that's what I would say on that question. Okay, so let me uh, pose a question by, sent in by Emily. Uh, here's the question. Since we were, I think it's a good question. Since we were raised on these religious commandments, how is it that society tends to advocate for moral, quote, grayness? In other words, since these commandments are presented as absolutes, why do people still say that it's impossible to be fully good or fully evil? Uh, you want to take a stab at that one? Uh, sure. I mean, uh, because it's unpracticable. Uh, it's unpracticable. So if you have a, a morality that puts forward standards which are, or uh, a code, if, it if what it tells you to do it is in essence contrary to your own life and happiness, you'll have, you'll have to, anyone with a shred of self-esteem will have to cheat on it. Uh, and so if you practiced it fully, I mean, if it's a morality of sacrifice, uh, if you practiced it fully and consistently, consistently, it would lead to your destruction. And so anyone who wants to live is going to have to cheat on it. And then they'll have to view this as, well, we're only human. The flesh is weak, et cetera. Um, and so this is where you get a notion of, I mean, it's not, and I'm not saying that that's the only source of a notion of moral grayness, but I think that's the one of the reasons why you get the moral grayness, the forgiveness. Um, yeah, that's what I would, that's my knee jerk answer. Yeah. I th and, and I think in addition to that, I, I think that for sure is important. The element of guilt is important. So if you're thinking of it really as commandments and obedience, um, the more a person is becoming an adult, is becoming rational, the less willing he is to obey and to blindly obey. And the more confidence he has in himself, in his judgment, the less it's just going to, he's going to accept, well, because I said so. That's why you have to do it. No, give me some explanation or some reason for it. Um, and this is what Abraham should have done. It was like, why do you want me to kill my own son? I love him. What, what is this going to do? It's, he's going to be dead. I won't have anything. Like, how is this good? He should have questioned and challenged God. But the fact that he doesn't do that is crucial to the story. But the, and thinking of, of this now on a, a wide, like long and historic scale, the more you feel guilt and the more you think I'm unworthy, I can't be completely moral, I can't follow all these commands. So you're, Aaron, you're bringing up that you can't actually practice all this. And, but you're supposed to in some sense. So you feel bad and guilty that you're not living up to this. And I am, a, I guess I am a sinner. And when they say, well, everybody's a sinner, yeah, I guess I can't do this fully. And then you fall to your knees. You're and that makes you much more compliant and obedient. And that, I think, and that, again, the parallel to the communists and Nazis, who are you to question Hitler? Or who are you to say that Marx or Lenin or Stalin is wrong? These are the great people and you're supposed to just bow down to them. That dynamic is important, I think, as well. In, in terms of thinking about these issues. And again, that what Ayn Rand is saying is you do not approach morality on your knees in that you're some kind of sinner worthless. No, you, you should cherish your life, take it seriously and ask what will really make it go well. Um, so she's, if, if you read her work, she's squarely on the side that you should achieve pride 
and reject the whole idea of unearned guilt, that you're born a sinner. Okay, here's a question from Daniel. If moral positions are objective and provable, why are they so hotly debated? Moral disagreement has been a perennial feature of human life, even among experts who would be most advanced in rational methods. Um, that, that's an interesting question as well. I think it's, um, one of the answers is that you've had this wrong approach to morality entrenched in people's mind for centuries upon centuries. And it takes a real revolution to free oneself from thinking of, well, when we're talking about issues of value, of good and evil, of right and wrong, of morality, it's really just somebody say so. <clears throat> That's all there is. There's no real proving anything, establishing anything. You can't approach it scientifically. <clears throat> and it was a major revolution to get out of this approach just in science. So I brought up a little bit earlier the case of Galileo, and he's challenging the church and church dogma and doctrines that have endured for centuries, that we know how the solar system works, because it's been decreed. This is how God says it works, and we're just supposed to uh, blindly accept that. They started to challenge that in things like astronomy, uh, in physics, in chemistry. But if you look at the history, the intellectual history, it took centuries, if you think of it, this is starting to be really challenged in the Renaissance, it took centuries to that you get science on a this-worldly secular foundation, that it's just about observation and logical reasoning, that there's no place for the supernatural, there's no place for commandments, there's no place for an authority telling people what to do. And that has not yet happened in morality or in ethics. Um, and this is part of what Ayn Rand is trying to do, that she's saying that the this, this same approach that in the physical sciences, like chemistry, physics, biology, if you think in the 19th century, Darwin's battle with religion when he's proposing the theory of natural selection and the whole idea of evolution and the battle of no, well, God, God created the whole world in seven days and there couldn't be this and so on. That battle happens in the physical science. It's yet to happen in morality. And what needs to happen, and part of what Ayn Rand is challenging, is that we need the same scientific approach in regard to morality, including what the very goal of morality is, what the end of morality is, and how to think about values and what an ultimate value is, and why it's the very phenomenon of life that generates the whole perspective of thinking some things are good for living things, some things are bad. And when you're talking about a living thing that's capable of making choices in regard, when you're talking about a human being who can make choices, certain things are good and other things are evil because he could do something different. And that, that you, you need a whole different approach. And we've yet to have that. This is, Ayn Rand viewed herself, I think rightly, as a moral revolutionary. And just as we had a revolution starting with the Renaissance in the other sciences, 
we need that revolution in morality. I think that's the basic wide perspective answer on that question, which is a very interesting question. And I'll add one thing to that. I mean, part of it is that uh, there's a certain approach that's been drummed into us for a long time. And there's a way of maturing and a way of getting out of that. But the other thing is they're hard questions. So one of, one of the reasons it's a really difficult question to come up, uh, to come up with answers to. Um, so, and that relates to another question we got sent in by um, Mark. Uh, it's, are there approaches to grounding morality in reality and science other than Ayn Rand's? I, I think there are attempts. Um, so there certainly are attempts to doing this. I think the attempts fail. But what, by the time you get to, uh, again, thinking of this historically, by the time you get to the Enlightenment period, um, and this is coming out of the scientific revolution in the Enlightenment, Newton and before him Galileo are viewed as great heroes precisely because they've advanced our knowledge of, of science and of physics and of astronomy to such an unbelievable and previously undreamt of degree. And part of the Enlightenment program is that we need to do the same thing with the same observational inductive approach. We need to do this across the board in all the subjects, not just physics and chemistry and astronomy. We need to do it in history uh, and we need to do it in philosophy, including in morality. And they're trying various kinds of approaches to say, no, it's based in experience and it's based in one's pleasures and pains. And someone, a, a relatively early enlightenment figure, John Locke, who's crucial uh, for understanding the whole founding of America, has this perspective that morality will, will become as demonstrable, so as provable as mathematics or as physics or as chemistry, though chemistry is uh, not that developed at the stage of law. It, but it will be provable and that's the whole perspective. Just like we have proofs in other areas, it will be in morality. The problem is, is they never figured out how, what that actually looks like. So Locke promises an ethics or a morality that is as secure as mathematics and the other sciences. But if you look through Locke's actual work, you don't find any such thing. And at crucial points when he makes moral pronouncement about what's good and what's evil, there's a reference to, well, this comes from God and the supernatural. And like, how could it not come from there? It's, we hope it doesn't have to, and we want it not to, but we can't figure out what that looks like. And this go, what goes to what you said a little earlier, Aaron, that it's hard to figure this out, to figure what would it look like to have a real scientific approach that is not at various crucial stages making reference to the supernatural. And that is what Ayn Rand is really arguing for. And again, in the links that I provided, the last one, the objectivist ethics, it's there that you'll get her perspective on where the whole issue of morality comes from, of how it's tied to life and the requirements of a living thing. And that that's our whole perspective on that something being good or bad, 
right or wrong. It's from the perspective of a living thing that's pursuing its own life. And that perspective, I think, if you grapple with it and, and understand it, it's that's what's putting it on a scientific and observational foundation that has no use for an appeal to the supernatural. But it's a, it's a difficult issue and they were grappling with it. So there's many thinkers, I gave Locke as one example, who I would say they're trying to do it, but I don't, unfortunately, I don't think they succeed. Uh, you're muted, Aaron. Uh, it also depends what you mean by grounded in reality. I mean, there are other approaches to ethics historically uh, that have not focused on something supernatural, but have focused on features of human nature, Aristotle, Epicurus, and so on. So there are other ancient Greek figures, uh, and not just ancient Greek figures, but have looked at some aspect of human nature, either whether it's our rational nature or it's pleasure and pain, both physical and psychological, to have that as a, a sort of a standard or uh, a yardstick to measure how we should figure out what's right and wrong. So rather than appealing to the supernatural, uh, I mean, Aristotle and Epicurus are standouts in that regard. When you bring in the scientific issue, um, I mean, that's another question. You can, you can sort that out in different ways. Yeah, and that, that's a good point to, that the, uh, the ancient thinkers are much less on the premise that ethics is about commandments than once Christianity becomes entrenched in, in the Western mind. It, that really cements that point home. Yeah, even if you take someone like Plato, I mean, it's not about commandments. It's ultimately winds up being supernatural. But even that, it's about what is in your best interest. But at any rate, um, here's a question from Rohit. Millions have read Atlas Shrugged, but the approach to morality has not changed. How would you change the approach to morality in the culture today? I think a, a revolution in people's moral views is the hardest revolution. And it takes an enormous amount of, uh, of teaching, of educators, of people in various walks of life proclaiming a different approach to thinking about good and evil, right and wrong, to morality. So it's not anywhere sufficient it's, it might be necessary, but I don't think of it as a sufficient condition that everybody reads Atlas Shrugged. Because just for one's own self, to, to read Ayn Rand's works and Atlas Shrugged, The Fountainhead, to take the novels, We the Living, Anthem, you'll get, if you read them, there's a different moral approach. But even in your own life, let, leave aside like trying to convince other people about this and make the, this moral perspective spread, you first have to think, like, what exactly is her approach to thinking about morality to right and wrong? Is she right about this? And then if you come to think, yeah, she's right, or at least in, in many crucial ways, I think this is right, it's a better approach. You have to uproot the ideas that you've come to absorb and accept through your whole education and upbringing about a more kind of conventional perspective of right and wrong. And that takes a lot of work to just for yourself to think, yeah, no, in various ways here, I'm just thinking of right and wrong, more like commandments. I'm supposed to do it because I'm supposed to, but there's no real goal or end here. And it's certainly not advancing my happiness in life. And I need to really think, no, that 
is not the right way to be functioning. It's scary to challenge moral views because you'll be declared immoral. Like if you're saying, no, I, I don't think all of life is about serving those in need, then, but that's evil to, to, to have that different perspective. And you have to say, well, no, on your approach to morality, it's evil, but there's a different approach. So it's a lot of work just to change your own views about morality uh, and ethics, and then to change other people's views. It's that kind of work, that kind of discussion, that kind of education. So it has, it's not just you can give person a book and that's the end of it. There's an enormous amount of thinking one has to do and then encourage other people to do. And so I, it's an educational program that will take a lot of time and you need a lot of people doing it, engaged in this kind of education in order to change a person's views on this fundamental an issue. And it would have to start again from early on that parents are not inculcating this kind of approach that it's right just because it's right and there's no real explanation. And in the end, you're supposed to do this because I said so. Um, that, it, for to, to think of this as changing culture-wide, one of the things that would change is parenting, early education. So there's a tremendous amount of work that would need to be done. So let me bring in another question here that we got sent in in advance. Uh, do you see anything positive in connecting the notion of God with the good? For example, if people reject reason as their main guide in life, then would God be the next best choice? And yeah, the, the questioner adds, some religious rules seem reasonable, like discouraging having children outside stable relationships. Um, yeah, that, that too is an interesting question. One of the article of mine that I linked to, I um, finding morality and happiness without God, in the, so that's in the chat, uh, deals with some of that. So, and I do think when you look at religions and their, their moral prescriptions, there's a mixture of some things that taken if you take it out of the context as this is an order that you're supposed to follow or a command that you're supposed to follow, no questions asked. If you take it out of that context, for some of the things that a religion is saying one should do or should not do, there are re you could give reasons for why, yeah, in, at least in certain situations and context, that is the way you should act and this is the way you shouldn't act. But you're now taking it as, I'm giving reasons for this, not that it's I'm giving you a command and you better obey regardless of what you think. And there are, uh, and, and religion is kind of fuses these together. And, but it, what it says and what it's very detrimental, I think, is that the ultimate core of appeal is not, is this reasonable? But are you going to follow this regardless of your reasons thinking? Are you going to take it on faith? And that's, again, the example of Abraham is it's clearly not reasonable to kill your child that you love for no reason, just because someone tells you to do it. And the whole point is he's supposed to bracket his own thinking. His mind is screaming at him, there's no reason to do this. I shouldn't do this. And he's going to do it anyway. And that, so is, is God like a, a, a substitute, maybe uh, not a, the, an ideal substitute, but 
Is it a substitute if you're not approaching morality scientifically? No, in the end, I think it's not, because what it's telling you is the ultimate court of appeal is not reasons and arguments, it's commandments and obedience. And that really is detrimental to a mind, I think. So let me add something. We got a question sent in from Tim, but it's, it's, it's a bit too long to address. We only have about five minutes left. Yeah. Uh, but he did uh, raise a point that's is good to, uh, well, for, for me to raise. Uh, so I posted this in the chat uh, rather than the Q&A, and that's uh, the reference to the article by Ayn Rand called uh, Causality Versus Duty. Uh, another excellent article on these issues, uh, and it relates to a previous question um, about lots of people have read Atlas Shrugged, how come nothing's changing? Uh, and one is you have to have a very different perspective. You have to motivate the issue of morality in a way that makes sense to people, uh, whether they can become invested in morality where it's not how do I avoid staining my soul, but how do I achieve my ends and what kind of... Um, uh, necessary conditions do I need to enact in order to uh, achieve those ends? And that's essentially what virtues are for objectivism. They're, they're the means to achieving the values that promote and enhance your life. And then in that, in that regard, you can come to see morality as an ally uh, in achieving them rather than an obstacle or an imposition. So I think uh, I mean, it's a complex article, but that's worth reading to kind of, in effect, remind yourself or to, to pick up a different approach to morality. Um, so, since we only have a few minutes left, here, let me take a look. Um, some of these will require a long answer, so. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do we have, four minutes? Yeah. So, this is your four-minute warning. Oh. <laughs> um, sorry. Maybe we can get a shorter answer on, oh, don't, I'll, I'll do this, but you can touch on this and you can okay. see how much you want to answer. Ben Shapiro argues that morality is impossible without God because free will can only be explained through religion. Um, what is the objectivist position on free will and how does this influence your view about whether morality is possible without God? Again, a complex or a short. <laughs> yeah, and there will be a later webinar, I think sometime in August, I forget the exact date, on the issue of free will. I don't think that's a good argument at all. And, but what is the argument? It's something like this. Um, <clears throat> and it's not that God explains free will, but it's rather God's something supernatural. He stands above the world of science, of cause and effect, and can perform miracles and so on. And for morality requires free will. And the way to free think of free will as it's unscientific, it's apart from cause and effect, it somehow transcends cause and effect, you can do something for no cause, and then it's free, supposedly. Um, and you need that for morality, so you need some notion of the supernatural for morality, because you need free will. Um, the idea of something that is has no cause, it's free, so it's done for no reason, no cause, in the ancient world, it's like a swerve of the atom. It just happens. So that is not, you can't ground morality in that. What morality means, and it does, it's true that it requires choice and free will, but that means you have causal control. Causal. It's not supernatural. It's not a causal. You have causal control over your own thinking and actions. And you have choice that I can exert this control and guide my mind rationally, 
or in various ways I can proceed non-rationally. And then in action, I can do things that are, one would describe as that was a rational thing to do or an irrational thing to do. You have control over this. It's causal control. It's not determined by antecedent factors, but it's you choosing and deciding. And that morality does require that. But this is a causal notion. It's not a properly understood. And again, Ayn Rand has a very distinctive view about free will because it is so fundamental to understanding morality. But it's a completely causal, this-worldly, natural, scientific view. And that is possible. And so that Ben Shapiro, and I mean, he's just one of many who voiced this kind of argument. It's just they don't understand um, what a secular scientific theory of free will would look like. Um, and one of the things they should do is they should read Ayn Rand on this. Okay, I see we're at the end of our time. Uh, so just a couple of last reminders. Well, one, thank you everyone for joining us. I hope you found this interesting. If you have suggestions for other webinars, other big questions you want us to address in the future, you can send them into webinars at einran.org, and we're always sifting through those in, in trying to decide which webinars we should do uh, in the next uh, few weeks. So please, if you have suggestions, do send that in. And just a reminder as well that uh, next week's webinar is going to be on self-esteem. My colleague, Elon Journal, will be uh, giving that one. And you can register for the whole series if you go to courseseinran.org webinars register. Um, so thanks again for joining us and we hope to see many of you next week. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.